you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Scripture reading today is from Jonah 1-3. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Amen. Amen. So five years ago, I did not have a dog. I didn't want a dog. I didn't need a dog. Uh, Animals are fine, but I didn't grow up with one. However, I did have uh, what felt like 14 children at the time, and so there was a lot of responsibility I was feeling and uh, didn't need a dog. But when your wife and your kids wear you down about a thing, you get the thing. So we got the dog. She's this small uh, eight-pound thing. It's like a mix of several breeds, but we love her. She's super sweet, and we say about her to sort of quote this popular sci-fi movie that she may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts. And as we got her off of Craigslist, we joked that she was the best $20 we ever spent. But the day that my wife and kids went to go spend that $20 and pick her up, what they found really changed everything because when they arrived at the person's property who was selling the dog or they saw animals everywhere it was a mess animal mess everywhere and the people who were selling her admitted that they hadn't been home for a long time they had been out of town for a long time and so this tiny puppy when they went to go get her had been so overlooked and so neglected that she was so frightened and so weak that she wouldn't come to them and that's when you say oh Oh, it's going to have a happy ending. It's okay. Uh, but we brought her home. And, but as we brought her home and brought this thing more and more into the center of our lives and our family, the thing that didn't look like much at first, that this, you know, then this small, neglected living thing began to grow and grow and became a source of joy and blessing and delight for us. And I think, I think, that the subject and the practice of prayer are a little like that. Morgan, are you saying that prayer is like your dog? (laughs) No. What I am saying is this, that the subject and the practice of prayer is something that, if you read through the Bible, is designed to be a blessing 
to your life, to your heart, to your relationships, to the world, to your health. But for a lot of people, maybe even the majority of people, prayer is something that we either tend, like I used to do with our dog, to either think, I don't need that in the first place, or we neglect it altogether. And therefore, it can sit all alone in the corner of our lives, something with the very power in it to change our lives and change the world, but we never, ever, ever discover the source of joy that it really can be. And I don't want it to be this way for you. I don't want it to be this way for me. And I believe our Heavenly Father does not want it to be this way for us. And so that's why this month, for August, we'll be talking about all month about prayer. We'll be looking at some famous prayers in the Bible, the stories behind them, and then see how those prayers can shape our lives, maybe change the world. So then why should we do that? Huh? Why should we pray? Why should we do something as seemingly as, as strange as opening up our mouth, opening up our heart to the, to the God of the universe and bringing this thing maybe that's been in the, in the corner of our lives into the, the center? Why should we do that? Well, I'll put it like this. It's because while prayer is no substitute for action, Come on, amen. While prayer is no substitute for action, action is no substitute for prayer. While prayer is no substitute for action, action is no substitute for prayer in our lives. And nowhere is that more true than in the life of someone we're going to meet today named Jonah, someone in the Bible, someone for whom prayer was really just this thing over in the corner of his life for so long. And today we're going to see as prayer becomes more central to Jonah's life, what that does to and for him in the world. So today we're going to see three things about prayer. First, we're going to see that prayer breaks Jonah out of something. It brings Jonah into something, and then it bears Jonah through something. It breaks him out, it brings him in, and it bears him through. Let's begin number one and see how it breaks Jonah out of something, and let's see what that thing is. We'll begin in chapter two, verse one. It says, from inside the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Let's ask three questions here to figure out what's going on. Number one, let's ask, well, first of all, who is Jonah? Who's this guy? Well, Jonah, uh, the Bible tells us, in 2 Kings chapter 14, was a real prophet. He was a real person during the reign of King Jeroboam. But unlike two other prophets, two of his contemporaries named Hosea and Amos, who were against the corruption of King Jeroboam's administration, Jonah supported the king, supported Jeroboam's uh, expansionist, uh, imperialistic military policies. Jonah, in other words, at this point in his life was after his country's glory and his own country's influence more than God's glory and God's influence. Because Jonah, like most Jews in his day, believed that his nation was the greatest nation on earth because they had God's laws, God's covenant, God's presence. Therefore, Jonah thought his people, maybe his political party, his race, were the good guys. And all the other nations were the bad guys into whose territory Jonah saw every right to expand. And we find him at this point in his life using his spiritual influence not to reform, but to unilaterally support a corrupt and ungodly administration. That's who Jonah was. Second, why is he inside a fish? Now, before I answer that, let me just say this. Don't let the fish thing throw you. Did this really happen, people ask? Give me 30 seconds here to speak to it. There is likely some authorial intent, some Hebraic linguistic stuff that lets you know that this story 
is far less about if this happened and far more about what it teaches about who God is. That is, its primary purpose is theological. But, and this is certainly true, if God Almighty could raise his son Jesus Christ from a dead in front of hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, then surely he can keep a man inside, uh, alive inside a fish for a couple of nights. All right? So again, don't let the fish thing throw you. Now, back to my question. Why is Jonah in the fish? Back to chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. Here's why. The book opens like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And what was that word? Well, God said to Jonah, get up. And go to the great city called Nineveh. Now the Ninevites were, were terrible. You may know. They were awful people. Cruel. Wicked. Murderous. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, they were violent. They were a threat to the nation of Israel. And so Jonah was afraid to go there. So Jonah runs away and he books a ticket on a boat headed in the opposite direction. You may know that while he is on the boat, oh, God tracks him down. He sends a storm, and when the boat full of sailors is about to go down, Jonah offers himself to be thrown into the sea in the hopes that his death will calm the storm and spare the sailors. Oh, but God spares Jonah by sending this fish to keep him alive. And so here he is in chapter 2. He is inside the fish because he ran away from the word of the Lord, but not For the reason you might think. Jonah wasn't running because he was afraid of losing his life. You ask, well, what was he then really afraid of? Here it is. In the last scene of the book, chapter 4, it's supposed to be both sad and funny at the same time. Jonah, after he arrives in Nineveh, after he preaches to them, he ends up there, and he sees them repent. Jonah says to God, see, this is why I didn't want to go. This is what I was afraid of. I was afraid, God, not that you would judge them, but that you would forgive them. I was afraid of your mercy toward them, God. I mean, can you believe it? Jonah actually says to God, God, I didn't want to go because I knew you were too loving. This is shocking. I mean, how can, how can Jonah pray this with a straight face? Say that with this. I mean, how can his heart have become so hard? That the good thing of God's love toward the Ninevites became a bad thing for Jonah. And the answer is that the good thing of God's love for others could only have become a bad thing for Jonah if some other thing had competed for and won the greatest level of affection in Jonah's heart. And now you know what that thing was. Jonah wanted his own nation to prosper, his own nation to be stable and great. And if Assyria uh, repented, oh, Assyria would be spared. And if Assyria were spared, Assyria might expand. And if Assyria expanded, then Israel would diminish, and perhaps even Jonah's position as court prophet might diminish. Jonah wasn't after God's glory. He was after his own glory and his own nation's glory. Oh, but let me ask you now. How's that working out for him? How's that old nationalistic glory thing working out right now? Hmm? Not very well. That's who Jonah was. That's why he was in the fish. Third question. So what's happening inside Jonah now? What's happening to Jonah is the thing that needs to happen to each of us. And that thing is the thing that everyone else around us can see but us, that's this. Jonah is beginning to be broken out of Jonah. Jonah's beginning to be broken out of Jonah because up until this moment, come on, everyone can see 
there's something wrong with Jonah, right? Except Jonah. We as the readers can see it. I mean, the sailors can see it. I mean, the captain of the sailors sees it. God can see it. Like the fish can see it. Everybody can see it. But up till now, Jonah can't see it. As the reader, you read this, you're like screaming at him, Jonah, what is wrong with you? Right? Like wake up and change. But I wonder, who is reading our story today? Looking at our life, maybe screaming at us, yelling at us, you need to change. You need to wake up. Oh, Jonah's prayer, therefore, right here. His beautiful cry of distress in the dark is the first real evidence Jonah is beginning to sense his need for God and his need to change. I ask you, do you sense that God is wanting to work in your life to grow you, mature you, change you? Do you pray like this? Hmm? Do you pray in your distress? Do you pray at all? Let me turn this on me for a moment. Uh, the 17th century theologian John Owen, he was a pretty serious dude, but John Owen put it like this about people like me, pastors, ministers. He says this, quote, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. What's he saying? He's saying, unless I find myself praying, our pastors, staff find themselves praying. If we as a church don't find ourselves praying, if prayer is something only relegated to the corner of our lives and no more, there's a good chance that we just might be a Jonah, that we're just in this whole thing, (coughs) this whole world, our whole, whole lives, just for ourselves. But prayer introduces into our lives a level of humility and brokenness that nothing else can bring. And I promise you, I promise you, that brokenness in prayer is not just the thing that you need, because you do. It's the thing that the people in your life who love you need from you. Because it wasn't just Jonah that needed to pray right here. No, a whole city, Nineveh, needed Jonah to pray. And don't you think at this moment in our history, our nation, our city needs us to pray for it. For us right now, it does. And prayer is the first sign that a person is beginning to be open to humble and broken before God. Number one, prayer breaks Jonah out of something. It's himself. But number two, we should also see prayer at the same time brings Jonah in to something. It doesn't just break him out, it brings him in. Look at verse nine. We'll see what that is. It says, but I, with shouts of grateful praises, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. So what has Jonah's prayer brought him into? Well, to answer that, here it is. Jonah's prayer has brought him in to the one thing that makes me want Christianity to be true. And it's the thing and the idea that makes me wonder why everyone doesn't at least want Christianity to be true as well. I can understand why people may not believe in Jesus Christ, in Christianity. I can understand the reasons people have for walking away from church or faith because of what they or what you have read, what you've experienced, what you were taught, your family of origin, the book you read or the pain you felt in that church from your past. So I understand why people don't believe. But I have a harder time understanding why people don't at least 
want Christianity to be true because what Christianity is all about is what Jonah is getting right here. And that thing that Jonah is getting right here is the thing that I believe at your core and mine is the thing that every living person wants at their deepest heart level. And that thing is the thing, this word, grace. It's the word grace. It's the word grace. God is a God of grace. We want grace. God here, that's what he's doing. Come on. God is giving. Can you see? The pagan Ninevites a second chance, and he is giving the ethnocentric, nationalistic, hypocritical, religious prophet a second chance. Why? Because that's who God is. He is a God of grace. Here, let me define it for you. Grace, therefore, is getting what you want the most when you need it the most. When you deserve it the least. Say it again. Thank you, Galen. Grace is getting what you want the most. When you want it the most. When you deserve it the least. Look at what experiencing the grace of God in prayer does to Jonah when he deserves it the least. Look what he prays. He, he, he summarizes it like this. He says, what I have vowed, I will make good. What was his vow? It was to be a prophet, right? A a minister of reconciliation to obey the word of the Lord. And now it's happening. The point is Jonah's been empowered by the grace of God. The power is back on in his life. The switches slip, the signals back on, the tower's back up. He's back on the IMF team, right? I mean, the point is Jonah's going. Experiencing God's grace in prayer empowers Jonah to be what he should have been all along. Why, though, does the grace of God do this to us? Many of you probably remember the the mass killing of Amish school children a number of years ago in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. There was a man who broke into the school. He took the girls hostage. He shot 10 of them, and then he killed himself as police descended upon the schoolhouse. And afterwards, the survivors reported that two of the older girls, when they figured out what was going to happen, they offered for themselves to be killed first, in place of the others. Now, the Amish don't watch movies, they don't watch television, they don't have radio. Where do you suppose they got the idea of someone offering themselves in the place of another? Afterward, the Amish community took up a financial collection for the, for the widow of the killer, and within hours of these shootings, went to the home of the the killer and offered forgiveness to the widow and to the family, holding the sobbing parents of the killer, praying with him for hours. And after the funeral, the wife of the killer wrote a letter to the Amish community. And this is what she said, the widow of Charles Roberts. She said, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Now think about this. By any stretch of the imagination, the Amish are fundamentalists. So why didn't their fundamentalism, it's a bad thing, right? Fundamentalism. Why didn't their fundamentalism lead to oppression and violence and control? Why instead did their fundamentalism lead to forgiveness peace. Here's why. Because it's all because of what their fundamental was and what their fundamental is, which is this thing found right here in Jonah 2.10. Salvation comes from who? 
the Lord. Salvation only comes as a gift. It's a gift by grace. It's getting what we want the most, when we need it the most, when we deserve it the least. See, those Amish people had received the grace of God, something they did not deserve, and therefore they were changed to be able to give something to someone else, what he did not deserve. They could be something they never could be on their own. Don't you see, prayer breaks us out of ourselves, right? I mean, it brings us into an empowering encounter with the God of grace. We receive something we don't deserve on our own to be able to give away for others. That's what the grace of God does. It enables us to be what we should have been all along. Prayer breaks us out of something, ourselves. Brings us into something, an empowering encounter with the grace of God. But it also does, number three, one final thing in the life of the running prophet. Prayer number three, it bears Jonah through something. You may know some of you that I, I was able to take a, a month consecutively of vacation, and during my extended time off this summer, just a few weeks ago, I had this series of increasingly unfortunate events that happened to me that left me increasingly anxious, uh, inexplicably unable to sleep for several weeks. Now, this is not like me at all. I'm typically able to sleep. Whenever and wherever, matter of fact, my, my old college teammates used to call me Gumby because I could sleep in any plane, uh, any locker, uh, any car, any bus, in any sort of contorted position at any moment. Uh, I have, and must confess I've been able to sleep through many a crying baby. Sorry, Carrie. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've slept through many a thunderstorm and one time through a tornado that went overhead. Carrie has said to me, you know, when you're asleep, it's like you're dead. It's like I need like resurrection power to get you up. Uh, and so when I don't sleep, it's unusual. I've actually been able to pray for many people over the years who experience insomnia and immediately they've seen a breakthrough and been able to sleep. So for me, this was unusual. If you've experienced insomnia, you know, it's really hard. It messes with you. So after a couple of weeks of this and feeling like, what is happening, God? Why is all this stuff happening to me? I'm supposed to be like on vacation. And if I have one goal on vacation, it's to pay off my sleep debt. It's not happening. And so finally, I quit being angry about it and decided if I'm going to be up, I might as well be up with Jesus. And night after night, I began to get on my knees or lay on the ground or fall on my face. And I began to pray and confess the word of God. I began to pray for many of you by name. Your marriage, your spouse, your children, for our leaders, for our church, and all God has for us. And finally, after many nights of this, I finally heard God say, just tell me you love me. Began to confess my love for Jesus, my gratitude for my salvation, my gratitude for Mosaic, and for you. Then I heard this, now fight back. Then I began to do what James 4 tells me to do in prayer, to resist the devil. It says, if I resist the devil, he will flee. And I began to fight back. And in the name of Jesus, I began to speak the power of God and break the power of darkness. And I felt this supernatural light, like flood my mind and my heart at 3 a.m. in my hotel room with my wife and kids asleep. And the love and peace of God washed over me. And I remembered in that moment, these words, I spoke them into the darkness. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What does prayer bear us through? Anything and everything. Anything and everything, but I, I, I needed a source of strength in my prayer. So do you, and so did Jonah. Let's look at where our source of strength in prayer can come from. 
Jonah gives us a hint right here in verse 4. He said, I've been banished from your sight. Don't deserve you, God. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. He says, I'm going to look again. I'm going to think about, I'm going to meditate on one thing. He says the temple. Why does he say the temple? Well, what was the temple? Well, the Jewish temple in that day was a pre-Christian picture of the gospel of Jesus. And here's why. At the very center of the temple was a place, a room called the Holy of Holies. And at the center of that place in that room was something called the Ark or the Box of God's Covenant. And that represented more than anything else who God was. And do you know what was in the heart of the box, in the heart of the room, in the heart of the temple? At the center of it all were the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. What this is telling us is at the very heart of who God is, is his moral beauty. His moral purity, his moral perfection, he is morally perfect and he demands that you and I be morally perfect in the same way that a judge demands that we not murder, not lie, not steal, not defraud. See, and by the way, you want a God like this. You just do. You need a God like this. Uh, You want a God that doesn't sweep holocausts and school shootings under the rug. No, the God of grace is also morally perfect. When Jonah shows up, his message from God to the Ninevites isn't, hey, Nineveh. You do you. YOLO. You live how you want. You know, here's the message from God. Repent. Repent. And the only place where God's holy presence would come was over that ark. Which means this. God's saying, I will only meet you, relate to you over my law. And if you're going to disregard my law and say morality is relative to whatever you want it to be, the conversation, the meeting between us is over. God's saying, I only relate to people who live by my law. You say, God, that's real hard to swallow. No, humanity does the same. Think about it. Will a symphony conductor allow someone to continue playing with the symphony if that person demands to play their own piece however they want? No. He would evict them, and you'd be glad. You'd thank him for it, right? Is the conductor unfair by demanding that the cellist play in accord with the other cellist? No. The conductor's not being unfair or hostile to the cellist, nor is he den- or she denigrating the artist's individualism and artistic beauty by demanding the cellist play the score. Now, the score isn't what keeps the cellist from beauty. The score, or the law of the music, brings the beauty out. The score actually allows everyone to be both an individual and to play in harmony with all those around them. If they don't, therefore, meet and relate over the score, over the law of the music, there's no relationship. If the rebellious cellist doesn't repent of wanting to be the conductor, they can't go on. God's law is the same, but with one difference. No one can actually play his score perfectly. And so over the top of the ark, God made provision for that, for a relationship. He would meet us in the part of the ark called the mercy seat. And over the mercy seat, the blood of a perfect sacrifice would be sprinkled that would forgive, would turn aside God's righteous judgment on human evil. And so now here, Jonah, in the belly of the fish, right here, he's thinking about while he is praying, the one place where he knows the grace of God is truly shown. He's thinking about while he is praying, the one place where there was a sacrifice made to receive unworthy, rebellious prophets like him. He was thinking about while he is praying, the place where sin is freed by the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And so today, let me tell you, friend, if you need strength in prayer, it comes by seeing, thinking about praying uh, toward the full picture of which Jonah only caught a part. It's God's true meeting place for
for himself and people. And that is his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the temple with skin on. He is the literal meeting place of God and man. The temple was just a picture of who Jesus Christ would be. Because he is the meeting place. He is the mercy seat. He is the law fulfilled. He is the blood sprinkled. He is the sacrifice. He is all of it. This is what electrified the first Christians who were all Jews converted. They saw perfect hesed, perfect covenantal grace. They saw the complete picture of which Jonah could only glimpse in part, and it changed them. They came, we come to the Father over the law, on the mercy seat of Jesus. Oh, those first Christians, they looked to the greater temple, and their lives were changed. They found a source of strength to bear them through persecution, suffering, and even death. And the same thing can happen to us, for us, when we pray. Yeah. One of my favorite places to go, maybe one of yours, is the mountains. I I love everything uh, about them. I love the beauty. Uh, I love the height. I love the the shape. I love the sound. I love the snow-capped peaks. I love the cooler air. I love to go in them, among them, hiking in them. And then I love to come back home to Texas, where I get real Tex-Mex and Topo Chico's. But I don't know if you've ever been to the mountains when there's fog surrounding them. When there's fog, it blocks your view of the mountain. You look and you look and you look, but you can't see the mountain anymore. The fog is surrounded and hidden the beauty behind it. But here's the thing, here's the thing. While the fog is real, you know the fog isn't permanent. The fog isn't for forever. And listen, when we go through things, when we suffer or we grieve or we experience pain or loss, it seems like the truth of who God is is hidden or gone. Or vanished. The fog of the pain hides the truth of what we once knew or believed or thought was there. But hear me, while the fog of pain is real, the fog isn't permanent. The mountain is. God is permanent. Pain and suffering aren't, but God is. Hear me. And we touch him through prayer. In the end, Jonah here, in his terrible, sorry, stinky circumstance, he touches the mountain. He touches what's real, the heart and the grace of God. And when he stops focusing on the fog, and when he starts touching the mountain, that's when his circumstances begin to change. And the Lord commanded the fish, spit Jonah onto dry ground. Today, will you touch the mountain, pierce through the fog, and touch the God of the universe through a heart opened and ready to receive Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.